Church, you can go and have a seat. Put those fans a little close to me. It's good to see you guys. If you don't know me, I'm Patrick. I'm a pastor here at Covenant Grace, and it's a joy to be gathered together again to worship our great God and Savior. And particularly in light of that last song, glory to God in the highest. That's what the, the heavenly hosts sang in announcement of the incarnation, this reality that God himself had taken on flesh. The second person of the Trinity took to himself a human nature in order to accomplish some very specific things for us. And so as we go through December, we're not doing a particular Advent series. We're in Matthew. We're in the life of Christ. And the reason that the incarnation is so important is because of what follows on after it. The, the incarnation was a necessary precondition for work that Jesus had to do that sinners might be forgiven and that spiritually dead people might be brought to life. And as we continue to look at the life of Jesus, we're going to see why the incarnation matters. So we're going to be in Matthew 8 this morning. Matthew 8, verses 14 to 17. We are a couple weeks outside of the Sermon on the Mount. We're watching Jesus now, not, no longer preaching, but in action here in Matthew 8. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. Let me pray for us this morning, church. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being gathered together under it. Thank you that you, you promised to care for your people uh, through your word. We, it's hard here. We live with our flesh. We live in the world. And there are spiritual forces of evil that lie to us about who you are and who you are towards us. And those lies are so easy for us to believe. So we need your revelation, Lord. We need your word to be brought to bear on us by the power of your spirit that we might see you rightly and respond to you rightly. So we come to you this morning in trust and dependence, saying, confessing that we need this and trusting that you will do it. Thank you that you are not limited by the weakness of the one who speaks. Instead, if anything, your glory is magnified all the more that you can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. So we submit ourselves to you this morning, trusting that you will work and care for us as you always do. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we're continuing on in Matthew today, uh, we're going to be looking a little bit more intently at a theme that's actually been running mostly under the surface in, in Matthew here for a while. It's peaked its head up above the surface a couple of times, though. And that theme is authority. It really says about Matthew 4, 24 or so, when Jesus began his earthly ministry after his baptism by John the Baptist, this theme has been kind of ever-present under the surface, the authority of Jesus. But of course, we've seen it kind of explicitly a few times, right? After Jesus got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount, what was the response of the crowds? They marveled at what he said. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. And that's what made it distinct from their other teachers, the teaching they were used to hearing was his authority. Then as we moved out from the sermon, we saw Jesus begin to act and, and engage with the people and, and display the power of the kingdom. We got to the account last week of Jesus with the centurion. And the heart of that account was the centurion's profession of faith, declaring his profession of faith in terms of authority, acknowledging that Jesus was unique in the authority that he had. Right, so this has popped up. But today, the passage we're looking at in Matthew, even though the word authority isn't there, Matthew kind of hones in and kind of draws to a head why he's focused on that. Why does the authority of Jesus matter? Why is it so significant for us? And so what we'll first see, we'll kind of do, it's basically two parts, right? First, we're going to see how the Jesus authority is manifest here in this very short account, these few verses. Just these few verses, we see a number of aspects and angles and perspectives on the authority of Jesus that are really helpful and that we need to know and that we often lose sight of, right? And then 
we're going to focus on what it means that Jesus has this particular type of authority and how he uses that authority. And ultimately, we're going to see, when we see those things and they all come together, we're going to see a Jesus who is immeasurably great and also stunningly gracious and good at the same time. That's ultimately what we see. So let's get into it. All right, so the first thing is we see Jesus' authority demonstrated once again, as we have so many times before. In these various accounts of healings, Matthew has shown us a number of different aspects of Jesus' authority and his power. And that is the case again here. And I'm going to draw out a few of them for you guys. The first in this one is Jesus' initiative. Jesus' initiative. One thing that you notice in this account is that there's no appeal made to Jesus. In the previous ones we've made, the, the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can heal me. The centurion comes and says, hey, my servant is, is dying. Can you help? Right? Here, there, there's no appeal. Right? Jesus enters the house. He sees her, he goes to her, touches her, heals her. Right? And this may seem like a small, little, subtle distinction, but this is an important thing that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, and that is that Jesus' authority is not limited in any way by us. Jesus' authority is not limited in any way by us. There are certain theological errors that if we make them, we end up with a God who's essentially handcuffed by people. Right? He's got his hands tied behind his back, and he has to wait for people for permission or help to be able to do what he wants to do. That is not our God. That is not the God that scriptures reveal to us. We cannot limit or affect Jesus' authority in any way. It is absolute and total. He is not limited to saving, to helping, because he has our help because we let him, or anything like that. No, Jesus always takes the initiative in this. And this is even true when we do see people approach Jesus, like the centurion in the last passage. The centurion comes to Jesus. Why did he come to Jesus? Because he had faith. Where did that faith come from? God gave him that faith. That faith was a gift, right? Jesus is always the one initiating. God always initiates his saving work in us. It is never from us. God is never sitting there waiting. Man, I wish they'd get their act together so I could do something. I'd really like to do this. If only you would do what you need to do. God has never been put in that place. And if you think that way about God, you have a small view of God. You have the wrong God. That is not who our God is. The bottom line is if the mercy and grace of Jesus, if us getting that was contingent on us drawing that out of him somehow, it would never come. Scripture speaks about us as being spiritually dead, right? What role does a corpse have in resurrecting itself? Absolutely none. It receives it. It's worked on from the outside. Jesus is merciful. Jesus redeems. Jesus atones, not because we evoke and draw mercy from him, but because he is merciful. It comes from him. And this is different than us. And this is one of the problems we always have. We always think about what we are like, and then we try to extrapolate it to God. It's very natural, because we know us. We know people, right? This is our reference point. And so usually when I am merciful or gracious to somebody, it's because I felt pity, or there's, there was something that stirred that up in me. That's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus shows mercy and grace because it is, it's sourced in his character, not something that we got out of him somehow. And church, when I say this, I want you to make sure you hear it the way that we should. This is phenomenally good news. It's a phenomenally good news that we do not have a God whose arm is too short to save without help. And this is phenomenally good news beyond just our salvation, which is the most important thing, right? We were dead, and their only hope is for somebody outside of ourselves to make us alive. And praise God, he is able to do so. He can do more than just help. He does it all. But this is so important just for functionally living your life. Right? There are things in life that we care about and that we know we cannot totally control. Right? I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is my kids. I love my kids. 
I would die for my kids. No questions asked. I spend time thinking about how to train them, how to care for them, all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I do not control their hearts. I don't. And I can use wisdom and I can be as faithful as I possibly can, but I don't control their hearts. And there's a part of me that, that hates that because I want to be able to do it. But it's actually the best thing ever. If I controlled it, I would fail. I would mess it up. Right? And you can go from that to, to everything else. Like, think about navigating relationships as a sinner with other sinners, whether that's marriage, friendships. It's hard. And if it was contingent, if it depended on how well you did, would that be a good thing? No. Not if you see yourself rightly. This is a good thing that we have a God who is able to work and is not hamstrung by our failures and our weaknesses. Because the truth is, on our best days, on your most faithful days, on your wisest days, you would screw everything up. Scripture tells us elsewhere, when you have done everything that's required of you, you still don't merit anything. For the Lord, all you can say is, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. That's our absolute best. And none of us has ever had a day like that. Right? So this is a good news that we have a God who can exercise his grace and mercy and his power and authority without having to wait on us, not dependent on our faithfulness. Do we want to be wise? Yes. Do we want to be faithful? Yes. But the way to pursue wisdom and faithfulness is not by thinking everything depends on you. It's by depending on the God who does actually control things, who does actually have this kind of authority, who controls what you do not. All right, so that's the first thing we see, Jesus' initiative, that he is not bound or constrained. He doesn't need anything from outside of him to show the mercy and grace that he shows here. The next thing I want to draw your attention to is, is who he shows this to. And this is going to continue a pattern that's been going on. Is that this mercy and grace, this authority is used for the sake of those on the outside. For those who are seen as weak, for those who are see, seen as not valuable, as mar marginalized, and even at times despised by those around them. Just think about what we've seen so far. First, we have the leper. Right? Literally cut off from society. Not allowed to be part of his people anymore. Anyone. Can't go anywhere without yelling unclean so that everyone can stay away from him. Completely cut off from both community and also from the worship of God because he's ceremonial unclean. Uh, ceremonial unclean. Jesus goes to him, touches him, cleanses him, heals him. Next, we have a centurion a pagan Gentile overlord of God's people, right? Another guy who's on the outside looking in, who we don't expect to see this. And what do we find out with him? Jesus talks about it and says, hey, there's going to be people from the east and the west that sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, hey, this person who was an outsider of the people of God has now been brought in. And now we have Peter's mother-in-law. First of all, she's, she's a woman, and in Jesus' day and age, women were marginalized. They weren't. They were devalued. Particularly uh, because Peter's mother-in-law is probably, you know, just by the math, she's probably older. She's most likely a widow, since she's living with him. And these, again, were people who are just, just adds to the marginalization. There's a reason why uh, James talked about true religion be caring for widows and orphans. Those were people who had no provision in that society. If you did not have a father, if you did not have a husband, you were basically persona non grata, societally. And that is most likely who Peter's mother-in-law is. And yet as Jesus enters Peter's house, he immediately takes notice of her, goes to her, and uses this incredible authority that he has on her behalf. Now, I think we miss that unless we see it in contrast to what, how we are used to seeing authority exercised, right? For us, this would be, think about kings or politicians, right? What do you do if you have power? 
You try to gain more power. You try to consolidate it, right? So you do favors for what? People who can give you more power, people who can secure you. This is what it's all about. Back before I was doing this, I once upon a time wanted to go into politics. This is what I was doing in college, and I worked for a politician, and I had these grandiose ideas of how I was going to be this great statesman and make these wonderful laws to serve everybody, and then I found out, you know, at least in my context, 98% of it was raising money and getting people to vote for you, even though you just won an election again, right? It was just all about how do you get and keep the power. And this makes sense for earthly kings and earthly politicians, right? Because they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. There's always somebody who wants what they have, and they are at risk. They aren't safe. And so they have to spend what they have to constantly secure themselves. And one example is, if we go to the Old Testament, Solomon who famously, you know, he famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? So he, he had issues, right? But a lot of those wives didn't necessarily have anything to do with just the pleasure of having more wives. It had to do with political alliances, right? He's, he's, this is one of the ways you secured your power, right? You go, you marry my daughter and have grandkids there, and then you probably don't want to attack me because we have this shared bloodline sort of thing. So the more you do that, the more you can interconnect things, the more you dissuade people from wanting to be your enemy, right? And that's part of doing this. Like, use what you have to secure yourself. But what Matthew's highlighting is that clear, Jesus clearly uses his power and authority totally differently. I mean, he could have done that. He comes off the mountain. Everybody's in awe of his teaching. There's like this momentum. Everybody's like, dude, this guy, let's go. And then what does he do? He's got all kinds of opportunity here. Just to the leper, the centurion, and this widowed mother-in-law. Just a horrible, blown opportunity, politically speaking. You know, his little, you know, political interns would be going nuts. Like, what are you doing? You're killing us. This wasn't the marketing campaign. But Jesus is different. He's fundamentally different than earthly kings and politicians because he has total authority. He is not at risk. There's nobody who's a threat to him. He doesn't have to secure himself because he is secure in and of himself. He is unassailable. He's not a paranoid ruler, always looking over his shoulder, always having to watch his back, calculating every move to strengthen his position because he does not have to because he is greater than they are. Because he holds such a position of strength, he can exercise his authority not to gain things for himself, but to give of himself. He's secure, not defensive. And so he can expend his authority for the sake of the least of these. Those who offer no benefit in return from the world's perspective. That's who Jesus spends his authority on. And again, church, in case you don't see the line right away, this again is good news for us. Because spiritually speaking, there is nothing that we add to God. There's nothing that God is lacking apart from us. He is totally and complete in and of himself. So if that were the parameters, right, if, if our salvation hinged on us bringing something to God, adding something to him, bringing something to the table that he needs, it would not happen. Period. Would not happen. Because we can do no such thing. But that is not how our God uses his authority. He does not use it to strengthen his position because his position cannot be strengthened. You can add nothing to him. Right? And because of that, he gives to those who are weak and those who are helpless and those who depend on him. That's how he glorifies himself. By spending this rich, extravagant authority he has on those who can offer him nothing in return because he doesn't need it. He is that great and that glorious. All right, so the next thing. There's a lot in these huge little verses, right? The next thing, and this is a little bit different, right? We see the greatness of his authority, but one thing that sets this account apart from the previous healings we've seen is the nature of the sickness. With the leper, leprosy was known to be incurable. Everybody just saw this. If you somehow healed from leprosy, it was just seen as like a miraculous thing. As far as they're concerned, you get this. This is like a living death sentence. You're done. Well, then centurion comes to Jesus. He comes and he says his servant's like on his deathbed, right? This is a seemingly fatal illness, some sort of palsy. 
Now, with Peter's mother-in-law, it's a fever, which fevers can be bad, certainly. But they, the way this word is commonly used, it's not used for things that are necessarily like life-threatening, dire sorts of things. This is something that she very well could have just healed up from normally. Right? This didn't necessarily necessitate miraculous intervention for survival. Now, that's not to say that this wasn't miraculous, right? It absolutely was. Jesus walks over, and the image is essentially almost like grabbing her wrist like, like you would to feel a pulse or something if you're a doctor just checking on things. But when Jesus does that, she's immediately better, fully ready. Think about when you recover from a flu. Like, you're just kind of dragging a little bit, right? She's instantly better. She hops up, and she starts serving them, right? So this was miraculous. It was instantaneous. At the touch of his hand, absolutely miraculous, but it shows us another important aspect of Jesus' authority that is very important practically and that I think is very easy for us to get wrong. And that is that he is the Lord of the small things as much as he is the big ones. We've talked about the extent of his authority, the greatness of his authority. And sometimes when we look at that, we can think, oh yeah, he's just concerned with all the big stuff. Right? So our, we end up playing out the Christian life something like, okay, my job is to keep, take care of the little stuff, right? There's all these kind of normal things that everyone has, and I should just be able to handle those. That's what normal people do, right? And then for the big stuff, then I go to this guy. Then I go to the big guns, right? We may not say this, because you already know. I can see your faces. You already know there's something wrong, right? So we may not say this, but practically, practically we often live like this, right? Like, yeah, I should, I should just handle this thing. This is normal. Everybody, people do this all the time. This should be fine. But this is an incredibly misguided notion and incredibly damaging, right? Because it assumes one of two things or, or both of two things that are wrong. First, it assumes that we are capable of handling these quote-unquote small things. That in these things, we can be independent and we're function. We don't need... Jesus for these things. We're all right. We've got it. Or secondly, it assumes that we are somehow inconveniencing Jesus, right? We don't want to put too much on his plate. He's got bigger things to attend to, which may sound noble, but it actually denigrates Jesus. Jesus does not have limited capacity like we are. He's like, oh, no, too much to do, guys. Sorry. Why are you bothering me with little stuff? That is not who Jesus is. He is not like us. We have to prioritize things because we are limited. We have limited time, limited capacity. We cannot do everything. We can't. But that's not who Jesus is. He can and literally does do everything. And there's all sorts of, of ways Scripture points us to this, right? I mean, in uh, the sermon at Mars Hill that is preached, one of the things that is quoted that is that in him we live and move and have our being. The idea is that, is that every breath, like the simplest things of existing, are not just solely natural functions, right? They come from God. They are natural, but they, we have them because he gives them. You drew your next breath because he decided you should draw your next breath. And when he decides you won't, you won't. Down to that small of a detail, your life hinges and depends on him. Jesus and power and authority have no limits. He's not limited to just the big things, but to the small things as well. And you are not free from him when it comes to little things. You are totally dependent for him on everything. Think about some of the stuff we've just seen recently in Matthew. Think about the Lord's Prayer, right? There's seven requests. Jesus says, hey, this is how you should pray. One of them is, give us this day our daily bread. This is not a big ask. This is basically, give me what I need to survive today. And Jesus says, yeah, you should pray that every day. That should be like, this should be normal. And this is the small stuff. Jesus generally feeds us every day whether we pray this or not, right? But Jesus says, yeah, you should really be praying this. Right? Why? Because it trains our hearts that we are dependent on him. That these things are not self-generated. That we do rely and depend on him on everything. 
Or again in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about worry. He says, hey, look, you don't need to worry. You know why? Worry is this, this counterfeit for control, right? It's this thing you're afraid of and you can't control it. So worry and anxiety, anxiety are this placebo for control, right? They make you're expending energy on something so you feel like you're controlling it, although you're doing nothing. He says, you don't have to do that. You're not God. You're not made to control everything, but God does. And he points them to what? These little things, flowers. The flowers are beautiful and they don't do anything. Why? Because we have a God who orders all things. The birds are taken care of and they don't think and plan way ahead. Why? Because we have a God who orders all things. Not a hair falls from your head without your father knowing and ordaining it. This is why we don't have to worry, not because these things aren't important, but because there is someone who controls and looks and ordains every single one, from the big to the small. And so church, you're not helping God out by avoiding trusting him in small things, by trying to be independent. The Christian life is about growing in dependence, about coming more and more to understand that you need him for every single little thing. That is what Christian maturity looks like. It's not growing more independent. It's growing in deeper into your knowledge of your full and total dependence on him for all things. And that is what glorifies and honors him. He's not glorified by you off doing your own thing and protecting him from having to do too much. No, he's glorified when you recognize who he is, the power that he has, the care he has for you by depending on him for everything. So when we see God rightly and we see ourselves rightly, we will be a people that is constantly growing, not in becoming more self-sufficient, but becoming less and less self-sufficient, more and more deeply aware of our total reliance on him for all things. So we've seen how Jesus initiates. He's not dependent on us for him to act and use his authority. We've seen that he uses his authority not for those who add anything to him, because those people don't exist. But to those who need him, and who are on the outskirts, and who are devalued elsewhere. And we've seen that this authority touches everything, big and small. The last thing to draw out about his authority is that, how much authority does he have? And so maybe these things kind of overlap, so we've already kind of seen this. But we see after... He heals Peter's mother-in-law. That evening, people bring more people to him, right? People who are sick, people who are oppressed by demons. And with the word, he heals all of them. The word, he heals all of them. Jesus heals and delivers all who come to him. All who come to him. His arm is not too short to save. He doesn't do all these things for just one person. His capacity is not capped in that way either. When you come to him, there is grace and mercy for your sins and provision and care with him. In John 6, Jesus said this, all that my father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we see that this, this authority he has is expansive, it's broad. It's not just he does incredible things for one person. He does these incredible things. He brings this authority to bear broadly. You know, one of the, the ways I love that the reformers talked about proclaiming the gospel, I don't remember who exactly said it, but I like it. They said, we should proclaim the gospel promiscuously, right? It's a word we generally associate with something else, right? But I love it in that sense, right? We are to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the life that is found in Jesus everywhere we possibly can, right? And that's because this is true. Jesus' arm is not too short to save. But another thing we see here, not in how much, is not just that broadness, but we see that his authority extends beyond the physical realm, right? It's not just physical healings that he's doing, he's also casting out demons, these evil forces of darkness that are oppressing people. Um, we're gonna see a lot more of this coming up in Matthew, so we're not gonna spend a ton of time on it today, but this is important to see, right? And Particularly for us, because we tend to have a very, uh, a very divergent view between the physical and the spiritual world. 
It's not the case in the time Jesus lived. They saw much greater mingling of the two. The fact that a lot of times they attributed sickness to, to demonic powers and things like that. And so part of what Jesus casting out demons is, is his showing his authority, not just over the physical realm. Yes, I can heal bodies. That's great. But also demonic powers, the other gods that nations worship, all of those things answer to me. He is Lord and has total authority, not just in the physical world, but also in the spiritual realm as well. So, a couple little verses, but a lot packed in there about this authority that Jesus has. But why? Why? Why has this been such a big thing for Matthew? Why is he going to such great pains to show us this authority of Jesus? Well, he really tells us here in verse 17. Verse 17. There we read this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Now, Matthew, we spent a lot of time on this at the beginning of the book. Matthew goes to great pains to show that Jesus is the Messiah. This is an expected king that's been prophesied and pictured in types and looked forward to in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament has been pointing forward towards this, this Messiah, this anointed one who is to come. And Matthew goes to all sorts of lengths to show you all these different ways that, hey, this is, this is the guy. He's here. This is the one you've been looking for. And one of the ways he does this is he uses this uh, fulfillment language. This was done to fulfill this. He does this ten times throughout his gospel. Five already happened in the first four chapters. He really leans into that hard then. But here we have another one right here. That This was done specifically to fulfill this thing that was said about Messiah who was to come. So what's Matthew referencing? So this is a reference to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 4, the first half of it. And Isaiah 53 is one of the uh, prophecies that we call the servant songs in Isaiah. There's four of them. This is from the last one. And these songs, these prophecies, they're all point forward to the Messiah, and they describe in a very particular way that this one who is to come, and they describe his work in a particular way. Um, this, they described as the servant of the Lord. And then his work is described and what he comes and what he does as God's servant on behalf of the people. And ultimately, he's portrayed as a suffering servant. Um, really, Isaiah 53 is kind of the last one. It's also kind of the pinnacle one, the one that is most clear. Pointing to Jesus. So I'm going to read you just a little part of it, three verses, the one before and after the one that Matthew quotes. And this is one thing, when you see a little quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament writers are expecting you to think about the stuff around it too. This is just how they wrote back then. So we should go back and look at more. We could look at the whole song, but for time's sake, I'm going to focus it in on these three verses. So Isaiah 53, 3 tells us this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, when I first read this, I, the connection seems a little bit odd to me at first. Because I hear Isaiah 53, and my mind immediately goes to the crucifixion, right? And rightfully so. That is exactly what he's talking about. But then Matthew's using it here, and he's saying, hey, what Jesus is doing right now is fulfilling this. So how do we make sense of that? What's, what's the connection point? Well, first and foremost, we need to talk about the connection between sin and sickness. I mean, this is something that's probably more obvious in Jesus' time than it is to us. But in Jesus' time, the Jews in particular very much saw sickness as downstream from sin. Not necessarily in a, you sinned in this way, so now you feel this way, like this direct connection sort of way. Although sometimes we did that. Job's friends come to mind as people who did that. You're suffering this way. You must have done something. I didn't. You must have. Confess it. I would. I hate this. No, you must have. 
you know, that whole thing for many, many chapters. But downstream more in the general sense of which sickness is the result of the curse of sin, right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God came with judgment, and part of that judgment was a curse. And that curse affected everything. Everything is broken, nothing works right. Our bodies are broken, the world we live in is broken. And sickness is a result of that. Sin ultimately, the ultimate uh, judgment for sin is death. And sickness is one of the things along that road to get there. And so in Jesus' day, they very much saw this connection, that sickness is a fruit of sin. It's part of the curse. And so there wasn't this strict, like, oh, this is just a physical thing. It was a constant reminder of sinfulness, that we live under this curse. We are not free, that death awaits all of us because of our sinfulness. And so we are, we should, we are supposed to see this too, right? Matthew writes, assuming we know our Old Testaments, assuming we know about the garden, assuming we know all these things. So we should see this as well. When we see people have cancer, when people have mental, when we see these kinds of things, these are not unrelated to sin, right? These are part of the curse. So that's the first thing, right? So then we go a step further from that. Once we realize that, we realize that as Jesus is doing these healing miracles, the physical healing isn't really the pinnacle of the miracle, right? It is a miracle, but it's not really the most important thing even in most of them, right? With the leper, for instance, leprosy was horrible. Being healed from that was a big deal. But the biggest, the biggest hardship of leprosy was the uncleanness, the being cut off from society and from the worship of God, being put out of basically everything that matters to a human being is cut off from you on top of the physical pain. So I mean, the physical pain removed is one thing, but Jesus did more than that, right? He cleansed him. He sent him to the temple and said, hey, go show them that you're clean. Do the things that you do at the temple for the priests so that they can, you know, verify that you're now clean and you can be welcomed back into society and back into the house of the Lord to worship with his people. That was by far the bigger thing. Same thing with the centurion, right? Jesus heals his servant from a distance without doing anything. He just heals him. Amazing. Great miracle. But by far the bigger miracle is what he says at the end when he says basically that the centurion is going to be part of the kingdom. This Gentile Pagan is now brought into the kingdom by faith, even though he doesn't share the bloodline of Abraham. He doesn't carry the mark of circumcision, and yet he has been grafted in by faith, his faith in Jesus. That is the bigger deal. All right, and so in, in all of these things, there's this bigger underlying thing that we need to see. The visible obvious thing is the physical healing. But that points to something deeper. And that's really gets to kind of the, the heart of the physical healing, right? Physical healing is great because you can see it, right? A dude's lame and then he's not lame anymore. A guy has leprosy and then he doesn't have leprosy. You can see it, right? It's, um, it's obvious. So if you're trying to display something, physical healing works really well. There's a passage we're going to get to in Matthew 9. So I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but it's important, right? And it's another healing passage. But Jesus says this to those who come. He says, for which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? Right? So it's like, well, it's really easy to say your sins are forgiven because who knows, right? Like, your sins are forgiven. You can't, there's no verification of that, right? But to say rise and walk and somebody actually does it, like, it's right there. It's in your face. And so what Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The actual harder thing is to forgive sins. But you can't see it. You can't verify it. So what Jesus says is to show you that I have the authority to do what I'm actually here to do. I'm going to do this other visible thing. It's actually much easier and less important. But the harder thing is to forgive the sins. It's a little bit like a tree, right? What do you see on a tree more, the fruit or the roots? You can answer. It's not a trick question. Yeah, the fruit, right? That's the stuff that's on top. It's usually some bright color. It stands out, right? The roots are where? Under the ground. You don't see them. They're doing stuff down there, but you don't know. 
And yet you can pick the fruit all day long and the tree's just gonna keep being a tree, keep doing its thing. If you kill the roots, what happens? The tree dies. The tree dies. So the physical healing is like, it's, it's like the fruit, right? It, it's visible, it's on display, you can see it. But sickness is a symptom. Sickness is not the problem. It's a problem for us, it's uncomfortable. We want it to be undone and it will be. But it's not the ultimate problem. There's something deeper that causes it. The problem of sin. Jesus will bring ultimate true healing that will not be undone. But to do that, he, requires, he, he has to deal with the source of it. Because this is the thing, all these people Jesus heals, guess what's gonna happen? They're gonna die. Even the ones later on that he raises from the dead, they die. Right? So if he just comes, if Jesus just comes and does all this miraculous stuff that everybody loves and is eating up on the surface, at the end of the day, it doesn't actually deal with the problem. We still die. Because the thing that brings forth death still exists. The sin is still there. We are still under the condemnation and wrath of God as sinners. So Jesus totally intends to undo every effect of sin, but to do that, he has to kill sin at the root. He has to kill sin at the root. And now is where we start to get the connection to Isaiah, right? This is where we start to get the connection to Isaiah, because as Jesus, as Matthew is referencing this prophecy, he's saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, yes, but he's also showing us what Messiah looks like, because there's a messianic expectation in Israel, but the messianic expectation in Israel largely looks like the external stuff that Jesus is doing, right? Like this guy comes in, he can make people well, he can feed people with not much. This looks like a great guy to lead a revolt against Rome, set up the throne, or back in the days of David. This is what they're expecting, right? That's the messianic expectation. But if they actually looked closely at their prophecies and everything, they would see that there's something different going on, that the Messiah isn't necessarily going to look like that. All right, let's look again at Isaiah 53 here. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid that hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What Isaiah is showing is not just that, Jesus, that the Messiah will heal, he's showing us how he will heal. And it has to happen in a very particular way for it to actually deal with the root. It can't just be words, it can't just be the touch that we've seen for the physical healing. The suffering servant is going to actually take the afflictions of his people onto himself, right? There's so much substitutionary language in this. If you listen, you hear it, right? He's pierced for us, crushed for us. Upon him, him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. So the idea the suffering servant comes, this Messiah comes, and he's not coming in to bring a surface level kingdom of power. What he's coming to do is to come to take away the root of all his people's suffering. Right? And you see the contrast. Jesus comes off the mountain, preaches this powerful sermon. Now he's doing these miracles, and everyone's like, yeah, this is awesome. And then you contrast that with the picture here in Isaiah 53, where the servant is he's despised. People look away from him because of the way he is suffering and marred. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Those who hung on a cross were, were thought to be under the curse of God. That's what being on a cross meant. And there's a reason Jesus died on the cross. That's a big part of it. He bore the curse of God for us. So the, the image that Isaiah is giving us of, this, of the suffering servant is very different than the messianic expectation that the average Jew had at the time. This coming of the Messiah is not this coming in glory. 
And that's a good thing. Because if he did that, if he came to bring the kingdom in, it's interesting, always, in Matthew, he's always talking about him preaching the good news of the kingdom. This is why the kingdom is good news. If Jesus just comes and brings the kingdom to a place where there's a bunch of sinners, you know what happens? Jesus' kingdom is a place of perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. No wickedness lives there. There is no good news of the kingdom if Jesus comes in the way that the Jews actually want and wish. It doesn't go the way that they think it would. It goes horribly for us. We would get crushed under the holy justice of God, and rightfully so. So he comes as the suffering servant first. He takes your sin, your iniquity, not just the surface stuff, the root, the core of it, unto himself. And he goes to this cross. And he bears the curse of God for you. He drinks the dregs of God's wrath for sin for his people. And later on Isaiah 53, it says, in doing so, he makes many righteous. Because he not only does that, he gives us his righteousness, the perfect obedience that he does during the time of his incarnation. And he clothes us in that. And that's why he can proclaim good news of the kingdom. Because when he does bring the kingdom in power, and he does do away with all the sickness and illness, and when he crushes his enemies because he came like this, you will be one. You will be his friend and his child and his heir. And it's only because he comes like this. It's only because he is willing to be mocked and despised and to suffer in your place that the kingdom is good news. This is the beautiful thing, right? Jesus, as he's showing us authority, he's showing us he's the Messiah. But then we come back and we see this is how the Messiah uses his authority, right? He could use it just to judge. He would be totally just to just come in, bring justice and righteousness, let the wrath of God for sin fall on us, but he does not. He uses his authority to atone and redeem his people. Of course, this causes him to be despised by men, right? Right now, crowds are flocking to him. They're in awe of him. Things are going to look very different in a couple of years as he hangs on that cross. As he's about to go, even his closest friends abandon him, and he's alone as he goes there, despised, mocked by men, even while he delivers their very souls from death. In church, we, however, do not despise the lamb that was slain. Right? Sometimes we want the same thing Israel wants, right? We want glory and we want power. But it's because we forget all of this that we're talking about. When we look at the cross, we see something entirely different. Right? What, what men in the world see as this utter failure and loss we see as the most glorious victory that has ever been won. There is nothing more beautiful than the lamb that was slain. So we exalt and rejoice in the weakness he was willing to take on, in the suffering that he endured for our sake. We glory in that. While the world laughs and thinks we're fools, we're not. Christ did not lose at the cross. He won, but the victory was cruciform. And that is still what victory for the church looks like. Jesus said that those who follow are like their masters, right? This is not the place where we get glory. This is not the place that we get honor, right? Just as Jesus came to win the forgiveness of sins for his people, we exist as his body to proclaim it and to rest in it. That is what we were here. And as we do that, we will be derided by men. We will be looked at as fools. We will be looked at as silly. Who comes and sits in plastic chairs for two hours on a Sunday to hear somebody talk about a guy who died 2,000 years ago? It looks like foolishness. But the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And he uses the weak things of the world 
to shame the strong. So we glory in the cruciform victory of the Messiah, who came first not to bring the kingdom in power, but to bring the forgiveness of sins so that that kingdom might be good news. We sang that song earlier, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And one of the things I like about Advent is because there's these two aspects, right? We look back to the, the longing for the coming of Christ the first time. But church, our great hope, our hope is grounded in his first coming, what he won for us there. But our constant hope as we go through life still under the curse in the broken world where our flesh is still here, where there are still spiritual forces of darkness who hate us and despise us because we are our God's prized possession as his people. As we go through that, our great hope is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the second time. Because when he comes the second time, it is going to be in glory. He is going to come with the same nail-pierced hands, but to root out every last vestige of sin and evil. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. All of it is going to be swept away. And so that is what we constantly look forward to, church. We are a people waiting for our homeland, waiting for a better country that we will receive because all that needs to be done to bring it about has been accomplished at the first come. So our cry constantly, our joyful cry, our expectant cry is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, save everyone you're going to save, and then deliver us into that glory. We long for it, and we're right to long for it. Church, the our pattern as Christ's body follows the pattern of him. The cross first, and then glory. And it is certain glory, because Christ has not failed but one. Pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for that we have such a Messiah, that the anointed one came not to just do justice and righteousness, which would avail us nothing as sinners, but to bring grace and mercy at such a cost to us. Lord, may we never, never fall into despising that the way that the world does. May we never lose sight of the wonder and the glory that is there. May we rejoice evermore in the lamb that was slain. Thank you so much for your kindness in that. And we do look forward expectantly to his return. We do look forward to his kingdom coming in triumph and glory and seeing his ultimate victory we long for that as his people. We pray that you would hasten the day, redeem those that are yours, and we look forward so much to what is in store for us because of the victory of Jesus. Amen.